Hey there folks, it is Always Be Watching, get ready to do some traveling because boy are we going all around the place. Folks, we are traveling to far off lands, we're going to outer space, different planets, we're going through the racist old south, we're heading to the strangest place of all, Europe. And then also, <laughs> we're going to kick things local with a little bit of cursing uh, from a new animated comedy. Folks, I'm going to warn you. It's going to be pretty fine for the most part, but when we get to that animated comedy, which I have in good taste put right towards the end of the podcast, there will definitely be some swears. So if you've got some kids around, like maybe you say, kids, I know you've enjoyed always be watching. I know you're a completist, but maybe this episode isn't necessarily for you. Putting that out there. Folks, this is always be watching. We'll be here with the cursing, the potty language shortly. Hey folks, this is Always Be Watching. My name is Dan Barrett. I'm joined by a guy who's party at the front, party at the back. It's Chris Yates. Hi Dan, I have let my hair go a little bit long during this period of social isolation and I'm enjoying it. I've gone seven weeks without a haircut and this is the longest I've gone without a haircut in some time. <laughs> That's pretty good. That's pretty impressive. I once went seven years without a haircut. Wait, wait, seven years? <laughs> I have done that before, yeah. Look, when I first met you, you did have very long hair. It was like in a ponytail because you're an ad executive or something. That's right. I was a frustrated 80s Wall Street uh, <laughs> executive and not at all a, you know, just a slovenly bum. Basically, he lived his life like Patrick Bateman, but without the business acumen. <laughs> I was really hoping you were going to say without all the killing, but yeah. yeah look, okay. we've all heard stories. Anyway, this is Always Be Watching. We're here to talk about TV. The premise of this here podcast is very simple. Basically, we try to treat it like your everyday backyard barbecue. You're hanging out with mates. You haven't seen them for, let's say, maybe up to seven days. And you're like, mate, insert name of mate, friend, if... Because we say mate in Australia, like if you're listening from the US, mate sounds weird. Like I'd be talking to Chris, it doesn't mean I've made love to him recently. Uh, but you know. Unfortunately not. <laughs> this conversation's really got off the rail. But anyway, we say, buddy, pal, friend, mate, what have you been watching? And then said friend will reciprocate and ask you what you've been watching. And it, during this conversation, we'll both regurgitate things that you think the other person should watch, even though they may not necessarily be into it. But every so often, you just stumble across a little bit of magic and you're like, yes, that is for me. And we hope to bring that to you in this very podcast. Uh, I especially enjoy telling people that I'm definitely going to watch that thing they told me that I should watch and then not ever watching it. Yeah, absolutely. I even know when I'm, I even know when I'm saying, oh, I've got to check that out, that there's no chance I'll ever watch it. But, you know, it's nice to be positive and it's nice to hear what other people like. Yeah, it's part of the conversational sort of framework that is culture. <laughs> there's not much else to talk about that's not unbelievably depressing at the moment. So let's keep it on the television. Look, if we want to keep things with unbelievably depressing, actually, I don't know if this is unbelievably depressing, but I had very mixed emotions in that I was left without emotion at the end of this. It's the brand new Ridley Scott TV series for HBO Max. It's called Raised by Wolves. I'm going down there to make contact so that when Mother and I are gone, you will be taken care of. But there are enemies. They are all that's left of mankind, Campion. Your kind. The war is over. I'm sure they'll be very pleased to add a boy as brave and capable as you to their ranks. And you can teach them all you've learnt about this place. All those fine skills you've developed. 
You will have to pretend to ascribe to their beliefs, but I expect that won't be so difficult for you. But can't they fix you and Mother? Keep you from breaking down? That's likely within their power, but Campion. Then we'll have them fix you, and we can all stay together. Yes, we can all stay together. But you cannot tell Mother. Not yet. You understand? When can we tell her? When it's too late for her to stop us. Now, Chris, raised by wolves, I went into this not knowing a single thing about it. I knew it was a Ridley Scott joint, and look, I don't know this to be 100% true, but I also know it to be true. And, you know, we'll, we'll find out whether or not I'm actually right. But I believe this is the only time that Ridley Scott's ever directed for television. So, you know, mm. first time Ridley Scott's directed for TV, produced a whole bunch of TV shows. Uh, for example, The Good Wife, one of my beloved shows, is a Ridley Scott joint. But he didn't direct any of those episodes. He just attached his name to it and started cashing in the checks afterwards. But this is something mm. where he's gone out and directed the first episode of the show. No doubt been involved in a fair bit of the sort of production that's taken place after this. He would have been there, I'm sure, no doubt, talking to them about the visual tone for following episodes and set that sort of visual Bible. First time he's done that, and I thought, this is kind of exciting. So I went into this incredibly cold. I knew nothing about it. And I have to say, at the end of the first episode, I'm still not sure I entirely understand what this show is. Raised by Wolves feels a little cold and clinical. The entire first episode also feels devoid of characters. The two main characters we follow are both androids who've been sent out into the far reaches of space to raise a group of six children away from a civilization of humans that is seemingly really, really religious. We watch in the first episode as they crash land their ship into what appears to be a desert planet. They then raise the children from birth, but very quickly we see that not every child's going to make it. And as it becomes increasingly apparent that the personality devoid androids have failed in their mission, a ship of religious zealots flies overhead the planet. What follows is a whole lot of bloody violence and plot twists galore. I know I kind of gave away the plot of the first episode, but I don't know how important that is either. No, me neither. Like, I think um, the first impressions that I had were that this looks and feels heaps like not just a Ridley Scott film, but my favourite Ridley Scott films, um, the science fiction stuff, and specifically Alien and Blade Runner. You made a really funny joke. I saw the trailer, which I, I kind of regret watching the trailer now after... Um, watching the first episode because how much of what i said was in the trailer because i really hadn't seen a single thing about it um not much but the trailer had lots of stuff from obviously upcoming episodes so there was sort of there's a lot of things that have been suggested that i wouldn't have that i would have liked to have come across organically i think but the um you know i think your little synopsis there was much less revealing than the actual trailer is which is good um the um yeah the trailer itself at the start said um you know, from the director of The Martian, Gladiator, and Alien. And um, I made the joke to you that why would you not mention that he also made the greatest film of all time, Blade Runner. And you said, you know, that's because it's they make trailers for normal people, not just nerds like you. I think I used the word dorks, but go on. Dorks. But the, um, you know, interestingly there, I think if you are coming at it, expecting something along the lines of Alien and Blade Runner, you're going to be a lot more, you know, you, you're going to get a lot more than what you expect than if you come at it thinking of something, thinking that it's going to be something broader than that. The, the, the main things that I guess I noticed were the, you know, of course the androids being the primary part of Blade Runner and also a really big part of Alien, the kind of the similarity between 
Um, the mother and father and Bishop, I think, from Alien were really, it's really, um, there's a strong linear connection there and, and something that I think he's trying to, you know, takes you into that sort of idea of the Ridley Scott universe. Yeah, I don't, I don't really consider Bishop amongst all of this, but yeah, you're bang on with that. Like he's, both of them are very Bishop type characters, both in terms of their presentation, but also when they start malfunctioning, it's kind of like this sort of bubbling substance coming from their mouth and the same yeah. way Bishop was kind of half organic, half Android. Yeah, right. So yeah, so I really like those ideas. Do you know if he's going to direct uh, all of the episodes? I doubt it. I don't think so. I think he's only on board for this one episode. Because it'll be really interesting to see how much of it is, you know. Because I really, really enjoyed it, and I but I don't know how much of that was just the, um, you know, was the, was the way that he can tell a story and the sort of the way that he presents his characters was so good. Because, as you said, like I mean, you just did the plot there in about thirty seconds, and you didn't really, you certainly didn't gloss over anything. Like, there's not a whole, you know, it's a great premise and a kind of an interesting setup, but there wasn't really a lot happened. And um, well, other so than the it's, kind it's of, not really narrative based. It's more the mood of the. Sure, which totally. I, I think is hard to sustain over like multiple episodes. I think it works yeah. well for a film, but I'm not sure this is really a series, and that's kind of where I think this is going to stumble a little. It really felt like a yeah, it really it really felt like a, a film in every sense. Like the kind of you know the set pieces are massive, the um the 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 effects were fantastic, and the kind of the speed and the pace was um, languid enough to be a kind of two hour film where we were sort of just starting to get into the swing of things when when the when the action started well the action really just started towards the um towards the end of the episode and then it took it takes you on a bit of a wild ride there for some for some stuff it's you know it was quite violent um which i guess i wasn't quite expecting but uh you know it wasn't it wasn't gratuitous and it certainly didn't seem unfitting uh how did you feel about that Look, I found it really interesting, and one of the things I was going to talk about this week, because I originally wasn't going to talk about Raised by Wolves, it only just dawned on me that it was coming out this week and that we'd got access to the screener, so we may as well talk about it for the day that it drops. Um, so I kind of dropped in, but the thing I was actually going to talk about is a Amazon series called The Boys, which is a superhero pastiche series, which I'll probably talk about next week on the show. Uh, it's, it's really good. I think it's really worth people's uh, time. But that show is incredibly violent and incredibly bloody. And some of the violence that we see in this program is not too dissimilar to what they've been doing on The Boys. But then later in this podcast, I'm going to be talking about Lovecraft Country, which is, again, similarly very violent and very bloody in very similar ways where people are just being exploded, I guess, is probably one of the best ways of talking about it. And, like, there is nothing left to the imagination on it. Like, it is a gory, messy, uh, puddle-inducing, a uh, little bit of special effects. And, yeah, like, I've kind of been desensitized to it because I've just seen three things in a row which have all been <laughs> just, just, just brutally vile. And I'm there for it. I bring on more. Yeah, and, and I I feel like it wasn't gratuitous. And I also felt like, that um, you know, there was some quite unique... It, it, it's pretty impressive to be able to kind of come up with a new way to explode people, which I feel like... Um, Ridley Scott has done it in this episode, which was pretty cool. Look, I actually found this to be the less uh, physically intrusive uh, body explosions I've seen on screen compared to the other two. <laughs> but I have to say, yeah, I'm actually very much there for it in that I'm not someone who really gets off on seeing a lot of blood and violence on screen. But I get very annoyed when things are bloodless on screen. Because like yeah. these are brutal, terrible acts that are you know taking place. And I hate it when it's just like, oh, you know, this person may effectively have just been knocked out. Like, yeah, if, yeah. if you're actually going to go to the effort of killing a person, make it seem as gruesome and terrible as the actual act really is, because otherwise, what's the point? Like, it really becomes a desensitizing 
like arc take for sure. We had some shots of the um, so so I don't think it's you know it's kind of it's post apocalyptic in a sense that you know these um, humans have obviously been sent off these human embryos have been sent off with these um, uh, with the androids to propagate another planet to try and um, to start again when the rest of the world when the rest of Earth is clearly at a in a terrible battle scenario some point in the future. We saw a few shots of the sort of the the dying Earth or the the war happening in the 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 science fiction futuristic version of Earth, which I just felt was like incredibly similar to the Blade Runner kind of opening shots and the 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 scene setting of all that. And it, and I think it worked, you know. And I think it was it was beautiful and gorgeous. And I'm sure we'll get to see a little bit more of that. But um, it's the you know are we here for do we want post apocalyptic movies? Do we I mean and television shows? And do we want stuff that's so bleak you know if we're going to be looking for a um if, if we're trying to give ourselves hope that there's some kind of future beyond all this and you know do we want to see a post-apocalyptic starting again sort of society that's so mired in just horror here's the thing like this is really episode one and i wish that would have been provided a couple more episodes so i could really get a handle as to what this series yeah. actually is uh because that'll really frame the conversation we're having here I guess maybe the thing that I found watching it is that the best science fiction can be far, far removed ideas that have got nothing to do with what's happening in your day to day society, but still tells you something about what humanity's up to. And something like this, where the core story seems to be about androids who have rebelled against religion and whether or not these androids are actually the tools of, a f you know, a faction of society that's broken away from religion, or if that's just that the androids have decided, hey, look, religion that's a human thing we're off to do our own thing but then why are they going off to raise more humans in their own yeah. way so it makes me think that a faction of humans are anti-religion and have entrusted these androids to continue and propagate their you know um anti-religious like belief system or lack of belief system is i guess the um yeah. thing is uh yeah. so it's it seems to me like this is actually a really good time for a show like this to come out where it is talking about science versus religion and the way that religious people can sometimes uh, become zealots about something and kind of break down what I think it means to be a human purely in the service of your belief system, your structures, as opposed to, you know, what's best for humanity around. And I'd say that's an issue that a lot of people grapple with today. I think you look around and see all these... Uh, I'm trying to think of the polite way of saying it, but the um, social boundaries that are placed on a number of people to be able to live their life to their fullest in a way that makes sense for them and is for the betterment of all involved, purely because there's some other people in society that don't necessarily agree with them based on their religious belief systems. And you yeah. look at that and then you think about what's going on in a show and maybe it actually does have something to tell about that, but I don't really know because we've only seen this one episode and it's a bit hard to see exactly what the shape of it is. Yeah, I started to get nervous when it looked like it was um, setting up this idea of um, atheism is bad. And I kind of, you know, I did some quick little Googling there and I'm like, oh man, have I been have I been confused about this all, all my life and really stopped <laughs> to quietly pushing some kind of Christian agenda down my throat or Scientology agenda? But um, no, it seems like he's a pretty, uh, he's a pretty uh, neutral, religiously neutral person. I don't know what to say as an atheist, um, but it had some of the, it, you know, it, it was interesting the way it was definitely starting to set up some of that stuff. One of the, um, you know, there's a scene where the father Android 
catches the um, surviving um, child uh, as a um, in, in prayer, basically, mm. uh, mourning the loss of his siblings or, you know, faux siblings. And, um, you know, he's reprimanded for it, but more to the point, it's like, you know, don't let your mother catch you doing this. So it's, you know, clearly setting up that she's very anti, anti-religion. Well, she seems and to be, anti the idea of this. She seems to be like pure to the idea of what they're there to do, as opposed to him who's more pragmatic. And he seems to come out with the idea of, oh, this kid has just found religion on his own. So, you know, how can we really get in the way of that? Yeah. And yeah, like that's, right. that's and, actually and... what I found a little bit interesting in that the kid actually found religion on his own, which the show seems to be saying that the need to believe in a deity, something bigger than just humanity, is something which is actually a um, physiological need rather than something that's actually sociologically drilled into them. And that was kind of interesting. And if the show has some stuff to say about that, I'd be very interested. Yeah, and also I think with the with the qualification on that that you know this is someone who had suffered a lot and had had suffered a lot a lot and was grieving a lot and was looking for a sort of justification for why or looking for some kind of solace in that sort of scenario, you know. So yeah, that's that's extremely interesting. Um, I uh, you know I, I was definitely pleasantly surprised by how Ridley Scott it looked and how uh, quickly I got sort of sucked into the universe and uh, really you know, really interested to see, to see where it's going to go now. The, you know, it was crazy kind of getting rid of half of the cast to, within 10 minutes of the show starting. Well, <laughs> I'm not sure it was even that. It was like two minutes in and suddenly everyone's gone. It's like, what on earth has gone yeah. on here? And then, um, so to see them, you know, to see the, you know, new characters added with it before the end of the episode was really cool. And it, it's certainly going to, um, I feel like there's a lot of a lot of directions it could go, and like you say, it would have been good to have a couple more to watch. But maybe it's interesting, um, just being able to ponder the first one so much, like we used to do in the old days when you would get one episode of TV a week. Yeah, I guess. But in the olden days, we didn't have podcasts where we had to talk about these things. So, Chris, one episode in. I'm a little bit unsure how long I'm going to stick with the show. I'm definitely here for like another episode or two. I was interested enough to know where the show's going. But I, I have a reservations. I was into it, but I wasn't like deeply into it. I, th no point was I really sort of emotionally connected to it. It was really just an intellectual exercise and I don't know how much I'm there for that. But if it's got some interesting ideas and the first episode definitely does, like that's probably going to be enough to keep me in the seat watching. But I'm iffy at this point. What about you? Yeah, I think I'm, def I'm definitely on board for the next few, like you said, um, but it could go, it does feel like it could go either way. I'm, um, you know, unashamedly big really Scott fan. So if it keeps that sense of universe and um, vibe alive, then it will be something that I'll be interested to keep going in. Obviously, yeah, there's a lot of um, deeper kind of questions and societies type stuff that it's dealing with. If it gets too deep into that, I'll probably get bored. But if, but if the um, sort of fantasy world keeps happening yeah yeah it's very it, it was very much it was very much more enjoyable than i expected it to be i think i liked it i think i enjoyed it a little bit more than you but um i still feel like it could go either way yeah uh question without notice what's your favorite ridley scott film blade runner oh, i thought you were gonna say a good year <laughs> i don't even know what that is no one knows that movie uh, but I'll check it out. I think I've seen I've seen nearly everything. I don't think I've seen The Martian. Weirdly, I think that might have been in The I Martian's pretty fun. Shooter. It's probably the most yeah, fun I'll... movie that he's had, and that includes a good year, which is a rom com that he made with Russell Crowe. 
And from memory, it's like Russell Crowe traveling to like a French countryside area where he meets like a young French lady and gets involved in French countryside shenanigans. You can imagine him just being enamored with Russell enough to want to do that and just be like, I wonder what would happen if Russell fell in love. Because he's a pretty, um, he's a pretty lovely fella. Imagine if he fell in love. I think my favorite Ridley Scott is still probably Gladiator. Like I saw that film really? probably about like 10 times at the cinema and it's just, there's something about the scope of that movie that just enamored me. But I have to say, I haven't seen it much since I saw it in the cinema. So I don't really know for sure how strongly Oof. an adult Dan really buys into it as opposed to 20 year old Dan. I'm looking back at the, um, at, at just at the uh, list of films that he's been, you know, given awards for as director or been nominated for, I think it is. Yeah. Um, and the what I'm cl- most keen to check out that I'd totally forgotten existed was Black Rain. Is that Mike? That's a Michael Douglas. Yeah, yeah. It's actually film, top right? of the list of things that I want to check out because it is sitting on a whole bunch of streaming services right now. And I've really? got memories of seeing it at the drive-in when I was a little kid. Yeah, so I when saw it, it come me out? too. Like I remember being a big deal. Yeah. 89, that's a good year for trash. Let's check it out. Let's, let's make a date to watch that one. Yep, done. Cool. Okay, so Chris, uh, we've done ourselves a Raised by Wolves from Outer Space. Let's go to the scariest place of all, Europe, for the Eurovision Song Contest. This is a film called... What's the actual full title of it? It's... Oh, now you've put me okay, on the here spot. We go. You want me to Euro- know the name of the thing that I've watched. Euros- Eurovision... Eurovision Song Contest, the story... Oh, is that it? Yeah, yes. you got it. Eurovision Song Contest, colon, the story of Fire Saga. No, no, listen. We were so close to realizing our dream. So close to winning. But it's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. Okay, you're right. Yes, we, we should concentrate on the music. And... Yes. So we'll do that for now. Yes. Excuse me. Yes? Hello? Oh, no, it's Tom. Hello? I have a telephone call for you. Okay. It's from the mayor of winning. He wants to say something to you. Yes, Mayor of Winning. Hello, Secret. You're going to win. Oh, how was your phone call? <laughs> okay, Chris, hit us. What's this about? All right, this is a uh, this is a charming little film, Dan, um, about a, a small. <sighs> Hang on a second. This is a charming little film, Dan, where um, Will Ferrell stars as a uh, middle-aged uh, singer for a band who, uh, with the one pure and solitary goal of winning the Eurovision Song Contest. Uh, he's been doing it for a long time. He uh, has had very little success in the area. He plays terrible gigs with his very talented um, bandmate who is who the entire family thinks is, you know, being held back by uh, letting, by going along with Will Ferrell's dream of, uh, yes, wanting to be a Eurovision Song Contest winner when obviously he has very little talent and um, just is a little bit delusional. His band's called Fire Saga and the miraculous happens when um, everybody who has, in, uh, they're, they're based in Iceland, so they want to win for Iceland. And uh, they have the Stephen Bradbury-esque good fortune of being the only surviving entrance from Iceland in the Eurovision Song Contest after their boat 
the after party for the um, finals catches on fire and explodes, leaving them as the only viable option. Um, and yes, hilarity ensues from from there as they uh, are fish out of water amongst uh, Eurovision acts, both. I think some are real and some are, you know, just sort of the pastiches that you would expect. I'm not a massive Eurovision pit person. I know I've got friends who are obsessed with this stuff um, and I can understand it because it's very fun and very campy and the kind of, you know, the, I think it was due to the, the broadcasts, which had the very cynical um, narrator commentator, should I say in years gone by, what made it a very, um, you know, what made it very popular, in Australia and in England, and um, you know they sort of talk about that a little bit, but I, but I've always just been a little bit on the on the fringes of it. I definitely like to check it out, and and the spectacle of the crazy metal bands and all that kind of stuff that get lopped in next to these over the top pop singers are really really funny. Um, but yeah, w- without having all of that sort of you know without having without being a massive Eurovision fan, it's still really it still really worked for me. You haven't watched it, have you? Well, look, the only part I've seen is just that moment where I pulled that sound bite out of. And I have to say, <laughs> yeah. I wasn't particularly won over. Look, I've got the issue <laughs> where, one, I'm not really particularly big into Eurovision. I kind of enjoyed it a little bit when you had Terry Wogan doing the commentary back in the day. But by and large, once Terry Wogan had retired and obviously he's passed away since Wogan. then. Yeah, like since Wogan's sort of moved on, like that's the last sort of reason why I think I'd want to watch it. Like, once you actually take away the mockery of Eurovision, I don't know what's left for me to really hang on to. Uh, but yeah, like, one, Eurovision, not that keen on it. And the second thing is uh, Will Ferrell. I, like, I really like Will Ferrell, but I'm pretty tired of watching him play very broad characters. I kind of like him a bit more when he's a lot more down to earth and, like, just, I don't know. Like, I, I think I'm just tired of anything that isn't a Bruce <laughs> Harvey brother from Night at the Roxbury. I'm totally cool with the Bruce Harvey brothers, but that's it. That's where I want to draw the line in the sand and say, no, that's <laughs> enough. You go off and be more human from here on in. Like, I think the I best, really movie, like- the best yeah. movie he did was, I want to say it's called The Other Guys, which is him and Mark Wahlberg, where Will Ferrell is really just playing the straight man in the situation. There's lots of ridiculous things happening around him, but like he plays it incredibly straight. And I really enjoy that. Like it's easily the best thing that he's committed to scoring. Um, well, I would completely disagree with that and say the more ridiculous he is being, the more I enjoy it. But I do, I do like it when he plays pretty straight as well. But I mean, this is so over the top, you know, like he's playing, like he's playing himself at a, as a sort of a very early twenties kind of person. And, you know, he's obviously not in his early twenties and then he sort of, you know, continues to play it as it ages. Um, the other hilarious thing, of course, uh, Rachel McAdams is the co-star and, um, she's completely smitten with him, but he doesn't even know that she's alive. So she's only sort of sticking by him and his clearly failing music career because she's so in love with him, which is another premise that I found absolutely ridiculous. And it was a testament to um, her actual acting ability that it's um, in any way <laughs> believable that she might have uh, such affectionate feelings for um, for this man. It, it, it's really funny. I was expecting it to be... Uh, a lot more um, just sort of showcasing about Eurovision and, you know, the, the, which it is, but the storyline is very, is very silly. And I, I, I really dug that as well because it kind of, it, it did a little bit more than it had to, I felt. And, it, you know, even though it was just co-opting all these tropes from very similar films, it still 
kind of gave it something a little bit more than just the yak fest that is um, watching Will Ferrell, Will Ferrell do the improvising stuff, which you can tell. I mean, you can see the lines that he's improvising in this in this film, and they're very, they're very, very good. Um, there was a scene. There's a scene that features a lot of past Eurovision winners. I recognise a few of them just from you know, like I say, picking it up by osmosis, basically, that was really funny where they do like this big song off. And I'm sure that those kind of scenes, if you're a massive Eurovision fan, would really elevate this to, to a, you know, to be a lot more of an, a special experience than just the kind of funny little lark that I found it to be. But, um, you know, me, I'm a bit of an idiot and I don't like to really invest myself too heavily in anything where i got to think a lot. This was right up my alley on a Tuesday night or whenever I decided to put it on. It was zero brain activity involved. Nice songs, you know, a, a sweet little relationship drama and all with this um, hilarious um, sort of Will Ferrell doing his improvisational thing. So yeah, it uh, a, a lot of ticks for me, Dan. I would rate this a lot higher than it deserves. Yeah, so I think it's been about six or eight weeks since this has come out, and I've managed to avoid it so far, and I think I'm going to continue. But Chris Yates is giving you a big <laughs> two thumbs up. Definitely two thumbs up for me. If 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 that's the um, scale that we're doing it on, it's very cool. There's a lot of other lovely stuff, like you know, you don't see Iceland depicted in film often enough, and you know, it's a beautiful, an absolutely gorgeous kind of visually spectacular kind. Uh, spectacular country so to be able to sort of see that stuff with this um I, and i feel like whenever you do see it it's always in this very kind of uh with this sort of self-importance and this kind of land of magic and wonder placed on it whereas it really did a good job i think of um playing it more the way maybe we look at um maybe some of the some of the sort of silly silly ways that we look at um new zealand you know where there's like you you, you kind of make fun of the kind of quirkier provincial kind of aspects of it like for example um the rachel mcadams character is you know gets all her advice in life from the elves there's still a lot there's still apparently i had to google this to make to just because i was just like what the hell but there's still like this kind of weird um unspoken belief that um there's there are elves in iceland and that a lot of people get their advice from the elves and they'll go to the like where they think the elves are and ask for their help and all that kind of stuff which in this was really, you know, it's it really quirky and kind of showed that silly side of it that, um, you know, that we don't we don't normally see Iceland portrayed in such a way. And it was and it was just, it was a really good comic device too because they kind of were able to rely on that in some in some pretty for some pretty funny laughs um, in the broader scheme of the story. So yeah, that was a really fun aspect of it too. And look, I, I've, I've reflected on it quite a bit over the last week or so since I watched it. I think I was going to talk about it last week, so it must have been about two weeks. And I, I've only had I've only had pleasant and very positive um, thoughts as I reflect on it and, you know, not really thinking it was dumb at all. There you go. Yes, two thumbs up. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> but I love it. It's on Netflix. Will Ferrell, if you, even, if you like him a little bit, you're going to find a lot to love out of it, except for Dan. Except for me, because I'm dead inside. But you know what? Something which stopped me from being dead inside is a brand new series called Lovecraft Country, which I could not be more gaga for. Anyway, Chris, let's listen to a brief clip and we're going to get back and I'm going to start gushing. Let it loose. <laughs> Not only my friends get to call me that. We still friends? Well, considering you were the only female member of the Southside Futurist Science Fiction Club. I was. <laughs> I was. <laughs> I heard you were down in Florida hiding out. How was it? Segregated. Okay, so Lovecraft Country, it's the brand new HBO series. Uh, people will be looking at this as maybe a successor to Watchmen, which was their, their big sort of sci-fi hit from last year. 
it's probably not quite at the level that I think Watchmen was at because Watchmen, I think, was definitely like a next level TV show. But this is exceptionally good. Agreed. The premise of the show is you've got a young African-American guy. So it's set in the 1950s. It's set in the south of the US. So there's obviously a lot of very nasty, very brutal racism that exists in this neck of the woods. Um, so you've got this African-American guy played by a actor who I've not seen anything before, I don't think. The actor's name is Jonathan Majors, but he plays this character called Atticus Freeman. He's traveling across um, a couple of state lines with his uncle. Uh, it's this guy named George, George Freeman, uh, played by the great Courtney B. Vance, who you've seen in almost everything over the last 20 or 30 years in TV and film. Uh, and then they're also joined by someone that he knew as a kid who's kind of like this sort of... I don't call it sort of a troubled girl, but like she's trouble in the way that she kind of lives her life. You know, she smokes cigarettes and hangs out with boys and loves music. And, you know, she's a bit of a wild child who's never really quite been able to settle down. Anyway, she's come back to town and like uh, played by Joni Smollett, who she's great in this, plays this character called Letitia. And the three of them end up setting off on a car trip to go and rescue Atticus, Atticus's father, who's gone missing somewhere in a part of the country that they're referring to as Lovecraft Country. So what you've got is these three African-American people in the 1950s on a road trip going to rescue a missing um, father figure. But as they're traveling through the South, they're coming across not only the monsters and horrific nature of racists and racism around the place, but also actual monsters. Because the show is based around the stories of H.P. Lovecraft. And so every episode of the show is a different type of monster mystery episode. So the very first episode has them facing off against some just big scary monsters in a sequence. Like literally in the pilot episode, there are three sequences where I was on the edge of my chair just like deeply invested with what was going on. Uh, one of them had the trio being chased down by some racists who just want to brutally murder them. Uh, then the other one had like this big monster sequence. And then there was a third one that I just don't want to talk about because there's, you know, deep lingering uh, memories in my mind that will make me cry a little bit. No, no, <laughs> you like, don't want to open that box. That's exactly it. No, no, like it's, it's such a magnetic pilot. And I think the second episode isn't quite as strong as the pilot, but the third episode uh, definitely takes the show in a direction I hadn't really quite expected from the first. So I'm interested to see what they do with each episode because every episode is kind of self-contained, but at the same time, there is definitely story threads which kind of weave their way through so far, the first three episodes, and I presume all of the 10 episode run. But what you're kind of finding is um, it's a story that's doing what I was talking about, great sci-fi doing at the very beginning, which is telling stories of humanity, but just crafted around ideas of the fantastic. Like if you think back to the very first episode of Watchmen, do you remember the way that everybody just reacted immediately? Because a lot of people, and myself included, had only just found out about the Tulsa Massacre, where you had a couple of hundred, if not like several thousand African-American people who were either badly injured or brutally murdered uh, through a race riot that took place. A race riot's even probably just a polite way to really even phrase it. But you've got that that took place, and like that's just the issue of humanity, but people were watching that Look, show yeah, that because was... it was couched around the idea of being a comic book far out fantasy production. That was definitely the most, despite how everything else that was great about that first episode and, and the amazing revelations to come really through the series, I still feel that still stands out in my mind as the kind of like most spectacular scene in the whole thing. And the thing that really 
you know, got everybody talking about it. And this is something that was actually real. Oh, look, absolutely. But the only reason why people were watching it specifically, so if it was a TV show, and we'll talk about this aspect in just a moment, because there's a very sort of uh, real life parable that we can use here. But if you just talked about Watchmen and just saying, hey, look, here's a story about African-American people and their struggle throughout the years and how, you know, the idea of who they sort of really are has been sort of quashed by the white man, um, for, you know, generations. And it just talks about contemporary America. Like you hear about things like that, you're not really going to be wanting to watch it. But it's like, hey, look, you know, here's a superhero drama series that reflects back about some of the issues that African-Americans have been through. Like it just makes it, there's this idea of giving a broader audience a little bit of sugar to wash down like a whole lot of medicine. Totally. And if you think about yeah, Lovecraft absolutely. Country, Lovecraft Country, there's these big elements of the fantastic and a lot more people are going to check it out because of that, but you're really going to be getting these stories about the... And it's a show which it's not like a gritty sort of uh, very human story. Like there's obviously humans involved in it and it's reflecting human pain and suffering. But at the same time, like these are sort of big, broad adventure characters that you're watching who sure. act larger than life and it's a fun journey. But even so, try selling people on the idea of watching that. You're going to get a smaller audience. You think about Lovecraft Country, which is doing this, but then also you think about the lady who's the showrunner, who's this lady named Misha Green, and her big series before this was a show called Underground, which is a period drama about the Underground Railroad, which was a um, thing in the South where you've got a lot of African-Americans who are on chain gangs. and Like, that show, nobody watched it. Not a single person yeah. saw it, but the general sort of flavor of it is not hugely dissimilar to what we're seeing with Lovecraft Country. But Lovecraft Country, massive show on HBO now, and it's going to get a lot of attention because one, it's very good TV, but also two, it's fantastic and a real wild watch. Yeah, it sure sounds great. Look, I hadn't looked at this at all, even when you said you were going to talk about it. And I was like, oh, Lovecraft, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not into, I'm not in the mood for some kind of, you know, kitschy horror thing. I'll, I'll watch Eurovision, the story of Fire Sucker instead. <laughs> but, um, but no, like, uh, that's definitely not what I was expecting at all. No, and like I this is firmly in your wheelhouse. I really believe this. So the first episode is very much just like a standard monster mystery. The second episode takes them to a house where they encounter, and because obviously we're dealing with racism and African-Americans, so you're going to assume the Ku Klux Klan are going to play a role at some point in the show. They get to that very quickly, but it's not a direct Ku Klux Klan um, storyline, but really they are playing around with wizards. So there's a fair bit of wizard magic sort of business going on. And when I saw yeah. like the episode was revolving around magic, I'm like, ugh, because... Magic is probably one of my least favorite genres of, you know, genre storytelling. Not Penn and Teller. Excluding Penn and Teller, of course. They're your favorites. But, I remember you used to have that Penn and Teller t-shirt. <laughs> Look, I do like Penn and Teller. I don't think I ever had a Penn and Teller t-shirt. <laughs> but I think you'll find that both uh, Penn Gillette and Teller, I can't think of his actual name, uh, both of those will say that they don't really perform magic as much as they perform tricks and illusions and explain sure, how the magic okay. happens. I'm talking about shows yeah. and movies that play with actual magic. People with pointy hats doing all sorts of wizard shit. Like Charmed, your other favorite, your favorite TV show. Outside of the 1980s TV show, The Wizard, if you remember that, I've got no interest in wizards whatsoever. <laughs> Fair enough. Second episode though, they do some pretty incredible stuff that I haven't really seen on TV before. So I was very much down for that. But episode three is a complete, um, it's a corker of an episode. It's a haunted house story 
playing around with uh, the idea of African-Americans living in boarding houses through the 50s. And so it really is playing with like these very strong uh, real-life tangible issues that African-Americans have faced through just the racism of you know day-to-day life for decades and generations sort of leading up to the 50s and just capturing it like within the framework of a ghost story, which was a lot of fun. So the idea too, of course, behind the behind it being Lovecraft, Lovecraft country is that it's, um, you know, it, it's, it's meant to suggest that Lovecraft spent some time there and was in, in this area of America and was inspired to write his books based on things I mean, that presumably, he had seen there, but the show just does nothing really to talk about Lovecraft himself as an author. That. And Lovecraft himself as an author is someone who is, he's, he's problematic for a number of reasons, but it's kind of like a reclaiming of Lovecraft in a certain degree. Yeah. And if you actually yeah, watch sure. the very beginning and the very first scene, I think, of Lovecraft Country has Atticus riding on a bus and he's reading, uh, gosh, what's it called? Uh, John Carter from Mars. And I don't know if you saw the movie that it was based on. Yep. It was a lot of fun. But the criticism of that film from a lot of people was that, oh, look, we've already seen all this stuff in all these other movies. Like, it just feels like a pastiche of that. But the thing is that all these ideas came from the Burroughs book that John Carter of uh, Warlord of Mars was based on. Yeah. And, like, it's this classic bit of literature. And the movie's really fun. The book's a really good read. But it starts with him reading it on a bus, and he's explaining to this other lady what it's about. And he says that it's like an ex-Confederate soldier who uh, is transported to Mars and becomes a hero, whatever. And the woman says to him, look, you can never really sort of have an X in front of that as a um, term. So, you know, the idea of once a Confederate soldier, always a Confederate soldier. But what that's kind of really telling us is this idea right at the beginning of you can never really take away the sort of person that Lovecraft really was, but you can kind of bring like your own sense of self and perspective to it. Yeah, that's really interesting. I like that idea. Yeah. And so like the story sort of puts that out on the mantle to begin with, but all three characters who go on their road trip at the beginning... The three of them are all very much interested in science fiction and storytelling and the idea of myths and legends. And they don't really talk about it overtly, but regularly, like every way that they that they frame something that's happening to them, they either frame it through a well-known story that they've all kind of read, or at least in a way that they are engaging with a myth or a legend. Like they're all just very aware of what these sort of stories are and how it actually sort of translates to the idea of like hero quests and that kind of business. So it's not quite that this is a metatextual TV show by any means, but it is a series where characters are very aware of stuff that's going on around them and how they can relate back to the fictional worlds that they've just enjoyed to get away from the horrors of the real worlds that they actually live in. So I guess I don't have to ask if you're in for the long haul on this one. It sounds like you've already tried to get as much of it through as much of it as you can. Look, absolutely. Like I went into it thinking this will be fine, but I was really surprised at just how taken I was. So the other week we were talking about Jordan Peele because we discussed Sorry to Bother You, which is a really cool film that people should check out. Amazing. But Jordan Peele, who's also one of the producers of Lovecraft Country, yep. one of the reasons that I think he's been so successful is that he's playing around with these science fiction horror tropes and stories that we're kind of familiar with how these work. But he's also bringing some real-life horror of the way that African-Americans have been treated and engage in these texts generally. So it's kind of bringing a fairly fresh take and something which feels very sort of modern contemporary to what are ostensibly old-fashioned kinds of stories. And you've kind of got this happening here, and I think that's a very successful way of approaching it. 
But there's a phrase that gets used, and I really just hate the phrase. It just like bothers me immensely. But you see it online all the time lately of people who use that phrase, uh, go woke, go broke. And it's just this idea that if a um, traditional publisher decides to start engaging in some progressive ways of approaching a story, so heaven forbid that they have female leads in there or have African-American leads or play around with something that isn't just a white guy as your protagonist, suddenly like it means that people aren't necessarily going to get on board with it and you won't be able to make money at whatever that endeavor is. Sure. And I kind of understand where this is coming from in that a lot of people, particularly in sort of marginalized sci-fi, fantasy sort of genre type areas, have had a lot of the stories that they, that they are interested in engaging in stripped away from the comfortable nature of what they expect from it. So they expect that it's going to be a white guy, that they can really put a lot of themselves into that as a main character. And that's just kind of been one of the sort of staples of the genre. So I understand where people are feeling uncomfortable about the world sort of shifting around them and don't necessarily want to break out from it. But at the same time, like, pay attention. Like, most of the sort of interesting storytelling sort of through genre has always been about progressive storytelling. And, like, you think about, like, the granddaddy of them all at the moment, which is probably Star Trek. I mean, Star Trek was very much, you had a white sort of um, action hero protagonist at the core of it. But that show was always about pushing the boundaries on all the other characters within the show as well. It was about um, allowing like the Yuhuri character, who's an African-American lady, to be able to take center stage in the show from time to time and be someone who actually had agency of her own. And you could only do so much within a framework of 1960s television. Yeah. But it was a progressive show for what it was able to do. You had the first African-American white kiss between uh, Kirk and Yuhuri on screen. Uh, you had a um, Russian guy who was like on the... Um, on, on the deck of the ship. And that was at a time, like says the Cold War was kind of ramping up. Totally. You had like an Asian guy in there. It was uh, Cousin Sulu. Like you just had all these interesting figures in there. And I'm thinking if you're a fan of sci-fi fantasy, you kind of should be on board with that. Totally. Like that's kind of what this is all about. But there's this phrase that goes around, go woke, go broke, because people just can't deal with the idea that the white protagonist is no longer a core part of it, but really all these peripheral characters are now actually taking center stage on there. So I understand where they're coming from and that they just feel a bit uncomfortable about the whole thing. But at the same time, like this, I think is like the best way of approaching it because it's not really sort of pushing the idea of here are African-American stories in your face, but it is being couched in a way of telling these really interesting genre stories that I think probably provide an extra bit of sugar to be able to get past it all. The, um, you know, this goes back forever, but yeah, I remember the controversy or the, not, I don't remember because I was there, but you know, there was a massive um, uproar when Charles Schultz, Charles M. Schultz uh, introduced the character Franklin Armstrong to peanuts in a very um under you know in, in a very subtle way it wasn't done as a big political move or anything like that it was merely it was you know there's a famous story about how a um teacher had written him a story and said you know you you got to you got to get a black kid in there basically like you know this is this is going to help change society and this is going to help make things you know better why, why are you not representing him and you know when you can look back now and you can see that you know it doesn't look like that. Like Franklin's marginalized, you know, he's marginalized within the, the context of the Peanuts comic strip as, as the only, you know, African-American kid, but it's still. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like the South Park character token. Well, yeah, it's, it's exactly the South Park character token. That's obviously where it came from, but they, you know, that was still, a, there was a revolutionary thing and it was still something that needed to happen in order for the, it was all these little tiny changes like that, that I think have at least changed the, 
you know, have, have at least changed the, some of the context around it. So you can't just you can't dispute these things. But yeah, I'm sure he would have received um, very similar fair mail to that at the time, telling him to um, that he was going to, you know, that his whole show, his whole comic empire would crumble with this introduction of a um, of of a, of a interracial friendship at school. You know, so it was it's a yeah, it's it's not a new idea. I guess the idea of you know um, inclusivity and um, and diversity and stuff has changed a lot over the last 10, five, two years and things are, um, and, and, you know, there's obviously those kind of people that are going to react to that negatively and, and, and be very loud about it, no matter in, in what context it's done. But um, yeah, I, I think that uh, it's very, very interesting the way Jordan Peele has been able to kind of use his, um, fantastic style of storytelling and obvious, you know, deep love of horror and science fiction and these things to really, I think, tell some, you know, new stories or at least old stories in a really new way, which I think is great. Look, absolutely. But yeah, Lovecraft Country, it's the new HBO series, runs for about 10 episodes and I reckon strongly, like, strong recommendation, get on board with it. Even if horror is not necessarily a thing, I think that much like a lot of the Jordan Peele movies of late, there's so much going on in this that I think it's just well worth your time to check out. I think it gets over a lot of hurdles depending on what your approach is to this kind of genre storytelling. I think I'm recently getting more involved, interested in horror again after, you know, like I grew up loving it and sort of in my early 20s and, you know, teen years and devoured everything and then got extremely bored with it as it all became kind of gore porn and, you know, the sort of sore and the... the um, Lee 1L kind of influence on the cinema where it just became this really gross kind of thing where I just didn't, it didn't really have anything in it for me, but, but I really feel like that's kind of changed in the last few years. And I'm really getting, I'm really enjoying this kind of much more surreal and um, yeah, different ways of looking at horror. It's really interesting. Yeah. It feels like there's a lot more imagination coming back into it. Yeah, exactly. Great. Yeah. Anyway, Chris, let's move on. Uh, there's one final show we're talking about, which is a show called Hoops. Now, I did allude to this at the beginning of the podcast, but if people are very language uh, sensitive or they have some kids in the, you know, near vicinity, you may want to move on because while Chris and I probably won't be getting particularly profane, the clip that I'm about to play does get profane because the thing with this show is there is no way you can find a single clip in it which doesn't have a whole bunch of rude language in there. Look, I, I couldn't essentially play a clip that has three words and the majority of it all just beeped out. So... This is where we're at. So we're going to play the clip in full and we're going to get back and talk about Hoops, which is a new animated sitcom on Netflix. And I hope I've talked for long enough so that people can move anyone away from the speakers if needed. You gotta call it even on both sides, you prick. Ben, I do not want to tee you again. The game is basically over. Oh, fuck you! It's not my fault that the hamster that you tied to a string and shoved up your ass chewed off the string and now you're standing there with a piece of string but the hamster's eating away at the inside of your asshole. Knock it off, Hopkins! Oh, fuck you, Greg. You're the one who probably shoved the hamster up there in the first place. Oh, fucking my fucking life! We're getting pounded inside the way your mama pounds your fucking sister! All right, you had your fun, but that's it. You're out of here! Good, I want to be out of here, because this is a shit show. On, and this is a circus. And this is not basketball. This is Barton and fucking Bailey's. Come on, no more. No more. Come on. But after they took away the elephants, and it's not as fun. Okay, Chris. So that was pretty profane. Uh, explain to us, what is the premise of this here TV show? 
All right. The premise of this TV show is that um, a small town basketball coach by the name of Ben Hopkins is um, recently broken up with his wife. He's having a terrible life. The team that he coaches is terrible. He's about to get fired because they never win a um, they never win anything. And he wants to turn his life around by turning this team around and becoming the coach of the NBA, um, the Chicago Bulls that he's always dreamed of being. Doesn't look like he's going to get there um, based on the first couple of episodes, but it's uh, he's definitely <laughs> trying to change his life around. The way he does this is he needs to get a tall person on his basketball team. They're all very short people in the team. So he um, tries to get a prostitute to have sex with the um, with the with the kid so that he will then have the confidence and um, whether you know want to be a, a basketball player so he will be able to have sex with more people is um, is the basic premise I don't know premise seems a little bit strong uh, for this it's produced by it's 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 the creation of a guy whose name is um, Ben Hoffman. And despite the main character having a very similar name, he's um, voiced by the very funny person, Jake Johnson. Um, but the, uh, yeah, Ben Hoffman himself is responsible for uh, a bunch of really crazy stuff, including a fake country Western star called Wheeler Walker Jr., who is kind of designed to just bait the um, American country music listeners and scene. And he just puts out all these like really obscene country records and um you know it, it, his reputation is for working very blue as what you can see in there it couldn't get much ruder it kind of follows in that um netflix tradition of these shouty angry swearing men characters in the lead of animated um in in the animated i'm not sure i'd call cartoons. it like a netflix tradition i'd say this seems to be a tradition of the animated adult sitcom by and large with the exception of maybe uh, what's it called uh, King of the Hill, I think they just generally got a lot of male protagonist shouty characters at the core of mostly shows, and so it's more a Fox thing than a Netflix thing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, it's definitely Family Guy is kind of the beginning of of this whole style of humor as mm. it tried to differentiate itself from The Simpsons somehow or whatever happened there. But yeah, you, that's fair. I was thinking particularly of the F is for Family or F for Family, the Bill Burr. Um, animated series on netflix which i think has got two seasons on there and it's pretty good like i'm not the biggest bill burr fan but i think he sort of um, does a good job of capturing this kind of wonder years-esque uh look at the suburban 70s america with it flipped to to be the um to be the you know him in the or it's 80s maybe with him to be the um you know the the protagonist is the dad instead of one of the kids and you can kind of get to see how um difficult he his life is or he perceives it to be I watched a lot more of that show than I'm going to watch at this, but you know, maybe if I was really into like amateur basketball or maybe if I was really into something that it would, it would have a lot more appeal to me, but you know, there was a few laughs. I, I, the interesting thing is when you played that comedy, uh, when you played that scene back there, just as audio, I think it was actually, it seemed a lot funnier you know, than what it does when it's on the screen. Okay. This taps into my theory with the show. Now I don't watch many of these adult animated shows because I just don't think most of them are particularly that great. And like, yeah, even if I get bad. like a chuckle out of a, you know, a few gags here and there, I don't tend to come back to it like episode after episode. I kind of get my feeling as, you know, whatever. So I haven't seen anywhere near the volume that you have of these. I actually got more of a kick out of this show than I think most people have. Cause all I'm coming across is people just talking about how terrible the show is, but I right. kind of found it funny. 
But the thing that I actually didn't like about it is the animation style. Because the animation yeah. looks and feels just like every single one of these other shows. Like, it doesn't have a unique, like, general aesthetic to it. And I think this is maybe where everyone's a bit sort of put off in that the show I don't think is, like, particularly that original or is doing anything sort of particularly... Like, there's, there's nothing no, that I think people can sort of onto. And it doesn't really have to, but I think maybe people have just had their fill. And so it's like, yeah. this has come along as a bit of an also-ran rather than a unique series in its own right. But I think the animation style doesn't help it at all. I listened to that clip then, and it was incredibly profane. And I had a big smile, smirk on my face while I was listening to it in a way that I don't think I really did when I was watching it originally because they had the visuals going with it. And it's not that interesting a show to look visually because it just kind of feels bland and stale. Where, as an audio production, that was fun. Yeah, it was fun. There's almost, it's almost like as bland and as nondescript as it could possibly be. Like I was sitting there trying to watch it and it's sort of, it's existing in this space between sort of the, um, you know, Bob's Burgers Central Park, which I don't love the character design on Bob's Burgers. Like that's certainly not the best thing about that show. I mean, I, I don't hate it, but it's not something that I've ever, I've always, you know, I, I've never wanted to get like a, a, a Bob figurine or anything like that because I just kind of, I don't know. That's not what I enjoy about that show. And the Central Park is very similar to that. And then the, um, and then also, you know, Rick and Morty's kind of like, it's a little bit different, but it's still very much just these round faces, round eyes. Like it's all kind of, I don't know. There's definitely been this kind of generic homogenization of, of animation styles, which has resulted in you either get this really far out stuff like Tuca and Birdie, which I really love and is, but is so over the top and crazy. And then you get this stuff that's like, just when they're trying to do something that's more realistic, it's like, make it as boring as possible. Yeah. I mean, I think about the animated shows I've actually really gotten into or at least I really sort of uh, felt an attachment to, even if I didn't necessarily watch a lot of episodes at once. But Bojack Horseman, which I've watched the majority of, I still haven't seen the final season, but I'm planning to get there. Like, that looked distinct, and it was really unusual and different. Tuka and Birdie, totally. obviously the same artist, so Lisa Hannah-Walt. Uh, it's going to have a bit yeah. of a similar sort of uh, visual flair to it. But that show kind of did its even own thing. Even more surreal. Yeah. And, like, that's fine. Like, it looked and felt different to anything else that was on Netflix. I still haven't really watched that show yet, but I'm planning to get to it. Uh, but then also I've been watching the 90s cold animated show Eon Flux recently. And mm. like that show looks unlike anything else that's really on TV. That is a visually weird, interesting show. Uh, I've got that. Also, I didn't really care for the show itself that much, but I really like the visual aesthetic of Midnight Gospel, which was the other Netflix oh, animated yeah, yeah. show from a couple of months back. Like these shows are distinct and original. And when you think about that show, the actual look of it really... Like, it's the first thing that really sort of strikes you when you think about each of these titles. But you think about, like, this show, and it's like, well, what even is this? It looks exactly the same as uh, Big Mouth, as any of the Family Guy productions, as, yeah. like, anything that's come from Fox in the last couple of years. Uh, there was that show that both of us quite liked from Mike Scully and his wife, whose name I don't quite remember oh, right yeah. now. Uh, which I watched the first couple of episodes of and just lost track. But, like, that didn't look that different either. Like, it's that same visual styling to it. And they're all just kind of blending into each other and not really just feeling like unique creations. And the thing with animation is that it is unlimited by anything but imagination. So when you've got these character totally. designs that all look exactly the same, like, what's the, like, what is the benefit of it even being animated? Yeah, I'm just looking. I couldn't even remember the Duncanville. I couldn't even remember the name Duncanville, let alone um, I had to giggle new Mike's. Scully, 
um cartoon <laughs> to be able to see it but yeah just looking at them now that and you're exactly like i couldn't even remember what the characters look like because they are just so nondescript as well and so it's this really weird thing where it's like just because you know just because we're telling a story that is set in the real world and doesn't have those conventions of cartoons where you know stupid shit can happen and things can explode and the duck's bill can swing around backwards and stuff does that mean they have to look this boring yeah i don't think it does and like you think about something like say king of the hill which the idea of that show was that everything was supposed to look really dull and boring. And it actually like, looks way better than each of these shows. Well, absolutely, way it does, because it looks and feels unlike any of these other shows. It has its own unique style into it. Yeah, and maybe that's even it. It's just sort of the whole idea that maybe these these shows aren't sort of designed by artists in the same way that they that they used to be, whereas, like, you know, where you've got King of the Hill, where it was somebody who was very much self-taught and came up, and, you know, there was obviously, you know, they're, they're only... A, Beavis and Butthead was this ridiculous over-the-top thing and then it was just sort of toned down a little bit to be a little bit more realistic for, for King of the Hill, but it still had a lot of that real character and flair of, you know, his original kind of character design. And then to, yeah, that just doesn't seem to be happening any, anymore or everyone's just trying to make stuff that kind of, they all look like they could fit into an interchangeable universe. You're right about Big Mouth even. I mean, that's a little bit more interesting, but it's still very, it's still very similar. Yeah, I don't know. And like, that was the one thing I found frustrating about it. But like listening to the clip, like Jake Johnson, I think is someone who has a lot of, um, like we were talking, uh, you mentioned it and we've cut that bit out of the podcast, but you mentioned earlier Adam Sandler and those sort of comedies from the 90s where you had sort of large over the top characters that aren't dissimilar to this coach character. And you think about those performances and Jake Johnson, I think fits very comfortably in that mold of character and is up there like with the best of them but he's just muted by the visual aesthetic of this program. Yeah, absolutely. Which is a real shame. Um, and like, and... there was even some good jokes in there. It wasn't even just performance. It was like legitimately a few good, like just dirty lines. Yeah. There was actually lines from there where I was like, Oh, I don't remember. Um, you know, Oh, you must be playing it from a different episode than what I watched until it got to the end. And I was like, Oh no, I did. Re I remembered the circus bit, but the whole other, the whole rest of it just kind of washed over me, which was actually really funny. Yeah. That's like in the first five minutes of episode one. Yeah. <laughs> so, <clears throat> Yeah, so maybe there's something more to it. Maybe maybe you could go back with it without, um, you know, maybe you could go back to it with lowered expectations about the visual or maybe even just listening to it might be actually good. But who's got the time for this stuff? So I'll probably, I'll probably be giving Hoops a bit of a miss as we go forward. Yeah. Uh, as I said, I don't really watch that many of these shows. And I have to say, like, this got a couple of good laughs out of me. I was a bit bored by just the visual look of it. But by and large... I think I enjoyed Hoops and I feel dirty admitting that because <laughs> I, I appreciate this is not a high quality show by any means, but like there was just a bunch of gags, which look, one of my favorite jokes to like have anywhere and it could be any medium. It doesn't really matter, but like anytime this joke is deployed, it gets me every time, which is where two characters are having a conversation like in private and it's just like a really sort of intimate moment for whatever reason. And then the camera pulls back and you realize there's a large group of people that are like in the <laughs> group yeah. with them. I can't even remember how the gag plays out here, but there's definitely that joke in the first episode or two of this. And like, as soon as that happened, like I'm belly laughing and just falling on the ground, <laughs> couldn't control myself. I love that joke. It's got your number. Well, you know, maybe maybe this is for you, Dan. You know, we don't, we're, we're all <laughs> able to like different things. But also like, it's not a good show. Like I'm certainly not saying, hey, look, I've enjoyed the heck out of this. People should watch it. I understand the limitations of me as a person. And like, this has squarely fallen into like that bracket. <laughs> well, I like to think that, you know, in a lot of ways, well, here's a really interesting comparison. I think, I think that um, I, I just watched the second 
I watched a few episodes, a couple of like not not very recently, so it's not totally fresh in my mind. But the animated um, series of the Trailer Park Boys, which is on um, Netflix as well, which has basically just sort of taken over from the net from the Trailer Park Boys, right? So it's basically like there's been a few episodes where they've made jokes about them being cartoons and stuff, but for the most part, most of the episodes of that could just be straight up Trailer Park Boys episodes, you know. And it works really well in that context, and it kind of um, they they managed to do stuff that I think was um you know they, they kept it kind of true to the tv show without having to with you know they they do some really big stupid over the top stuff but it still kind of works because it's still it's still rooted in the real world and not only that it's rooted in this real world that we've got a lot of those of us that have watched every episode of the <laughs> boys and all the movies and everything else are very very much rooted in this real world and you know the character designs being based on real people i think to make them a little bit more interesting to watch and they kind of give you that familiarity and when they're based on people that you're already familiar with looking at they kind of already have some distinct uniqueness about them but um what i don't i don't necessarily think that we have to like that everything has to be this big visual explosion and that we can't just use animation as a form for watching sitcoms and funny shows but I still think it has to have something in it that's good. It still has to look as good as what a, a live action show would. And I really don't think that Hoops is pulling that off at all. Look, absolutely. Now I had like a random thought that I put into the Always Be Watching newsletter that people can find at alwaysbewatching.com. Uh, the other day I was talking about, I can't even remember what it was. It was, oh, the Powerpuff Girls are coming back as a live action TV show. And mm. there was something about like the word girls in there that sort of made me think about the Golden Girls. And I asked the question, why the Golden Girls can't come back as an animated sitcom? But also, like, just through this conversation right now, why can't the Golden Girls come back as an animated sitcom? <laughs> Absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm into it. Let's, yeah. let's have, make it happen. Like, everybody is into that as an idea. Like, if you've just heard the idea for the first time right now, which is probably everyone listening to this right now, <laughs> like, you're on board. Surely. Yeah. You're, surely you're on board. Who's no, going to not watch that? Yeah. Who could not think that's a good idea? It was actually something I expected to pop up a bit more when I saw the Trailer Park Boys one. I know they kind of exist in their own universe and there's, you know, there's people that are rusted on Trailer Park Boys fans like myself and there's people like yourself who will never watch it and get into it at all. But there's but there's so much potential, I think, to kind of do that kind of stuff. I'm really well, surprised to, to not see it happening more. There is a bit of a trend in Canadian comedies of turning these shows into animated shows. So Trailer Park Boys, which I think has some sort of rooting in Canada. Yeah, like, yeah, it's Canadian. It's a Canadian yeah, show, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So you've got that. You've also got, uh, gosh, uh, you've got Letterkenny, which has got an animated um, spinoff now. Yes, that's right. But then you've also got uh, Corner Gas is the other one I was thinking of. Ah, which Corner Gas has spun off into a multi-series now of animated seasons. Wow. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, well, it's a really cool idea. I, mean, I wonder why that's specifically happening with Canadian shows. Is, is it cheaper to produce these? I guess it probably is these days, right? I think it's probably just easier to sell globally. And also it makes the show yeah, seem sure. a bit more distinctive. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I um, well, the, the first one, when I first started watching the um, Trailer Park Boys one, I was like very, the first episode of the animated one was real stupid because it was like, oh God, they take mushrooms or something and they become animated. And that's the whole, you know, that, that, that I was disappointed that they bothered to put in this premise of why it was happening because I really wanted it to just, I, I really hoped and I thought it would be kind of unique to see it just as a complete, you know, it's just, just a continuation of the series. It's just yeah. flipped to animation, which is what it's become now. And I understand, I understand why they had to, why it would have been fun for them, I guess, to write those stories where they were, you know, taking mushrooms and turning into 
cartoons but yeah when it sort of settled down and it just became like the, sh the show that um I, I very much like as a, in an animated form i thought wow this is a really cool idea and this is something i'd hope to see more of so yeah maybe we still will mm. but yeah especially from canada yeah the golden girls which was very much not canadian <laughs> yeah. honestly those ladies yeah, right. well, you can find the um change.org petition to get the golden girls remade as an animated series you know I'm what now, i'm gonna do that be watching that is a, that is a very good idea. People have heard the origins of this idea now. The change.org will be out before the podcast is released in that I'm going to do that in about five minutes' time. <laughs> Excellent. So we'll see that and um, you'll be able to uh, follow that. Maybe you'll even edit a little bit on here about what... No, it'll just be on the Always Be Watching website, right? Yeah, in the newsletter. We'll be able to link to it from there and in the newsletter, which you'll get in your news tomorrow morning in your email. <laughs> <laughs> it begins here, Chris. Anyway, folks, this like we should get out of here. We've talked too much. Yes. Uh, Hoops, that's the new Netflix animated show. Um, other shows we talked about, we kicked off with Raised by Wolves, which is the new HBO Max series. Obviously on HBO Max in the, uh, North America, but here in Australia, we get it here on both Binge and Foxtel. Uh, you've got Lovecraft Country, which is also an HBO production here in Australia on Foxtel and Binge. The Eurovision movie, the song of The Secret of Nymph. Fire. What was it called? The Fire Rain something. That's Netflix. Fire Rain something. I believe it was Eurovision <laughs> Song Contest, the story of Fire Saga. Fire Saga. Yeah. Oof. Yeah. Netflix. Check Euro it out. Eurovision Song Contest, Five All Goes West. Uh, so you've got that. That is streaming <laughs> now on Netflix and Hoops on Netflix. Chris, always be watching. You can find that on every damn podcast platform there is, I think. Most of them. Tell me Pretty I'm wrong. Much. Anyway, it is out there. If you like the podcast and it is a platform that allows you to leave comments for your many friends and the outside world to see, leave a comment. Please make it positive because my ego can't really take it otherwise. <laughs> we can't take it, I'm man. I'm very fragile. We're barely hanging in as it is. <laughs> Rough times. Anyway, this has been Always Be Watching. My name's Dan Barrett. This has been Chris Yates. G'day. See you later. <laughs> G'day comes at the beginning. See you later comes at the end, which is where we're at right now. Thanks. Folks, this has been Always Be Watching. We will talk to you next week. <laughs> <laughs>